But as you know, we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and it's good for us to take a moment and hang out at this pit stop called dispensations. And the reason is, is because the subject of dispensations is number one, highly neglected, number two, often made fun of, which I've never understood. Number three is just generally not known. And what's amazing is, is the Word of God talks about it all the time. Okay. So in chapter 3, if you would look with me, we're going to look at verses 1, 2, 3, 4. Uh, running through here, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you where to skip down at and take a look, okay? It says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation, the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, that by revelation, that's how it came about, there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote it before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations, here it is. If you haven't marked it, please mark it. If you've got one of our note-taking booklets, but it's very important to understand what Paul is telling us here. In the other times, other generations, previous, Old Testament, the past dispensations, was not made known to the sons of men. Recognize this. The church is never mentioned in the Old Testament. Not one time. It's very important for us to grasp that. So in Acts chapter 2, you see this idea of Jesus being crucified on the cross, dying, He's buried, He raises, He appears to many people for 40 days, He teaches His disciples about the kingdom of God, He ascends into heaven, and then all of a sudden, this brand new thing happens called the church. It is a very interesting and purposeful switch in the narrative of history. God is doing something. Previously, unknown. But because God understands the beginning from the end and how it's going to work out, He sees the need to put this entity known as the church there for a reason. Guess what? That's you and that's me. And for that reason alone, this should not ever be considered as something that's trifling or boring or anything like that. So He says, uh, let's see here. In other generations, it was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And what is that in particular? To be specific, that the Gentiles, everyone who's not a Jew, are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body of Christ. So the church is not just made up of Jewish people. It's actually Jew and Gentile together in a brand new equal level playing field. Notice also they're, they're fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now skip down to verses 11 and 12. It says here, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what that tells me? It tells me that some nut job with an atomic weapon is not any surprise to Jesus. That's what it tells me. It tells me that when everybody wants to fear monger and try to get us off track and get us so worried and desperate about a current situation, and it usually always happens around election time, in doing so we can say, wait, time out, man. Jesus already has all this taken care of. Why are we freaking out? We don't need to. Probably what would help is if we just knew our Bible, we can understand beginning and end. We can understand exactly what God is doing. So this was in accordance with His eternal purpose, which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. So what is a dispensation? A dispensation is a period of time, so it always happens within time. Remember, 
Time is something that God gave for you and me. He doesn't need it, okay? He created it for you and I so that we could be more determinative of what He's doing in history because they will say, at this time, after those times, in those days, that's what we see. A dispensation is a period of time during which God is testing man's ability to govern the earth. God rules it all because God created it all, and God desires to share that rule with you and with me. So what does He do? He imparts responsibility. Notice that we have this... this uh, do I have it on here? I don't. So remember, there are four pieces to a dispensation. They fit in a pattern. Why does God create a pattern? Because God wants you to know what's going on. Number one, there's a responsibility that's given. He entrusts something that He's done to people. Number two, there's failure or there's unfaithfulness when the testing comes. Why? We're sinners. I'll, I'll never forget this time. This was really strange. And we don't even have time for stories this morning. Did the clock stop? It's still on 1045. So every time I look up there while I'm preaching, it's always 1045. And just real, just real quick so you know, I actually realized this morning I prepared two sermons, okay? So you're not getting them both today, don't worry. Um, I'll never forget there was a time when Beth's brother and his wife uh, just had their first baby. And he was like two. And we were setting up th some things for Christmas, and he got a hold of this glass ball. Now, what's the fear there with a two-year-old with a glass ball? They're going to drop it. They're going to cut themselves, yes? And that's exactly what happened. He dropped it. He hit it somehow, sliced right into his hand. Yeah. That's the picture of what this failure situation looks like when a responsibility is placed in our hands. This danger is going to come. Why? Because the heart is perpetually evil and it only wants selfish things. And it usually doesn't care who it has to hurt in order to get it. It's just serve me now. The judgment comes about because God is just. Is He very gracious? Absolutely is. But He's also just. We would all be in deep trouble if you just let criminals run the street all the time. Everybody would have the bars on the doors, locking everything. Chuck still doesn't lock his doors. He probably will now that I said that on the internet, but not to his house, to his car. Anyway, you're welcome, Chuck. Um, Judgment is, is God's necessary response to sin. But what's amazing about this is regardless of how bad it looks, God is always looking for the opportunity to be gracious. Why? Because that's who He is. He always wants to be gracious in every situation. And what's interesting is, is every dispensation fits this pattern. So, when we look back at what we saw, the dispensation of expansion. We've seen innocence, we've seen conscience, and we've seen expansion. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Okay. What was the failure? We're not going to spread out. We're all going to get in one place. The judgment was that God confused their languages and then divides the earth. This is an important point that you need to recognize, the division of the earth, because it's everything that we're going to look that happens today. But the grace is, is that even though the languages cause a scattering, the filling of the whole earth takes place. Everybody is able to spread out. The various nations will all have their own individual tongue. Now, here's a question. Can the state of expansion give well-governance in a stewardship situation? Does everybody do a good job if God just says, hey guys, you need to do this? And everybody's like, yeah! Does that happen? No. Let's be honest. Some of us would have a stroke if our kids were like, I'm just going to obey you from now on. Fred Sanford moment, right? For real. It doesn't happen. So now, turn to Genesis 10 with me. I want, to, I want you to see this. 
And this is actually two parts. It's two parts as of this morning at 8 a.m. Two parts of what we're going to be looking at. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 10. You don't have to worry about the first Chronicles reference if you don't want to because they both say the exact same thing. So very first book, Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10 is an incredibly, in a world sense, audacious chapter. And here's the reason why. is because this is what is known as the table of nations. If you want to know where people came from in various people groups, ethnicities, and cultures, the Bible actually wants to make the claim that it happened at this time, and it gives you the reason for why it went down the way that it did. Now here's the thing. If the Bible's not true, you should easily be able to take Genesis chapter 10 and rip it apart. In fact, Genesis 1 through 11 is some of the most attacked portions of Scripture in all of college now, and especially first-year philosophy students, first-year biology students. If they're Christians, they always get hammered and hated because they actually say, I believe what the Bible says. Well, that's not right. But what's interesting is if you could just get on Genesis 10, this is about geography. It's about lineage and geography. That should seem, maybe we could try to prove that wrong. No one has yet. And I want you to see this very interesting section. Verse 25. Two sons were born to Eber. Now pause for a second. And if you look up just a little bit, you're going to notice in verse 21 that one of Noah's sons was Shem. Everybody see that? Notice it says, also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber. And then it brings up some other people that's going on there, okay? So notice that you deal with the children of Eber. Moving down here, verse 24, Arshaphad. Uh, because of the fa- uh, became the father of Shelah, and Shelah became the father of Eber. So you're seeing the disconnection, or sorry, the connection between Noah, Shem, Arshaphad, Shelah, Shelah to Eber. So we're, notice we're talking about generations here that are going quickly together. Verse 25, two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. Does everybody see this? In his days. In other words, the Bible is marking out for you exactly after the flood when the situation of the Tower of Babel took place. Generationally, you can cap it. In fact, you know that because if you go past the Tower of Babel incident in uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, you get into more genealogies. And we know that we all fill our devotional time with the Lord up with genealogies. We do? Usually not. But it's important to do that because if you look at 11.18, Peleg lived 30 years and became the father of Reu. And Peleg lived 290 years, 209 years, forgive me, after he became the father of Reu and had other sons and daughters. So notice, you could go through this, get, it, get you out a line graph or chart graph, however you want to do that. You can actually bar this out and figure out when this happened. It wasn't too many generations after the flood that it did. And remember, what motivated the building of the Tower of Babel? We're going to build something so high that if a worldwide flood ever happens again, We're going to defy God with this situation because we're all about ourselves. We want to make a name for ourselves. And we want to draw a line in the sand and say, ha, we're greater than God. Big, massive mistake. So the earth is linguistically divided up. Now, the great thing about Scripture is that anytime you're going through and you can find another portion, it's going to give you some comment on the same event. You end up having a much more well-rounded understanding. One of the greatest problems we have is we'll take one verse or one little paragraph, and we'll say, hi, this is the end-all, be-all. Stop. The Bible speaks to so much more than just that. So take your Bibles, if you would. Turn to the right, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 32. And here's what's interesting about 
Deuteronomy 32. Number one, uh, Deutero means second. Namas is law. It's the second giving of the law. This is the second generation coming out of the Exodus situation. Remember, the first generation came out. They said, there's giants in the land. We're not going in that land. God said, you're right. Because you didn't trust me, you're not going in that land. However, your children will go in that land. And so Moses is getting everybody prepped to go into the land that they should have gone in 40 years before. And what's interesting is God says, Moses, write a song and teach it to Israel so that when they sin against me and when they disobey, and it wasn't like little white lie stuff, I took $2 out of the penny jar or something like that. It wasn't like that at all. This was, we're going to go and bow down before demons and we're going to create idols that look like them and we're going to end up killing our children in order to appease these demonic influences. This is the extent that they got to. God says, when they start slipping up, I want them to have this song lodged in their minds. Why? Number one, musically, it's much easier to remember. Number two, He wants truth embedded in them so that it will bring them to their senses about where they went wrong. Sometimes we all need a wake-up call that happens. Now let me tell you this, because something glorious of God just happened this morning to me just a few minutes before we started. Where's she at? Lori Krigbaum, where are you? There she is right there. This woman made me a little mason jar of some of the sweetest tea I've ever had in my life. She filled it halfway with ice. She said, does it taste like it's from the south? I said, yes. You know, I was even taking the remnants and like lining my gums with it. It was amazing. Thank you. Glorious. Back to this. Deuteronomy 32. I had to share it. So Moses is prepping the people for disobedience. Now watch what happens here. Because he tells us something about this moment when the earth is divided. Verse 7. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father. He will inform you, those who were there before. The elders, they will tell you. Now, well, watch this. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when He, everybody see the word? When He separated the sons of men, He set boundaries of the people according to the number of the sons of Israel. Does everybody see this phrase here? Now let's continue to read. We'll back up and let's break this entire thing down because it's important for us to understand. If you've been in Deuteronomy class when I was teaching it, you already know this. It's okay. Refreshers aren't going to kill anybody. For Yahweh's portion is His people. Jacob is the allotment of His inheritance. Trivia quiz. Who is Jacob? Israel. The Lord's portion is Israel. That's who belongs to him. Now, here's a problem here. Israel was not a people when the Tower of Babel incident happened. In fact, they didn't come along until much later, and if you go out throughout Genesis 11, you can unfold that genealogy and find out. There's there's a chronology that takes place until Israel comes. And so the question is, is what in the world is going on with this portion right here? How do we deal with that? Well, Here's what's interesting. Everybody put on your nerdy hats for just a second, okay? It's 1045, so we've got plenty of time. The NASB translation is derived from something called Masoretic text, okay? And the earliest manuscripts that we have of this are 9 AD, 900s AD, right in that realm, okay? 
about 800 years removed from the time that John the Apostle died after he wrote Revelation. What's interesting is, is that in 1948, there was an uh, excavation that was done uh, over in the, in the caves of Qumran. And if you know this, you're familiar with when I say the Dead Sea Scrolls. Everybody familiar with that? What's amazing was is they were able to sit down and find these manuscripts that were listed at 2 B.C. And so they would roll out portions of what they had from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they would roll out those 9th century A.D., so we're talking 1,100 years in between the two. And they would go through and they would check for accuracy about how they've been copied throughout this. And what they found is 99.97% accurate. The only differences had to be in certain marks that might be considered various punctuations. Could it be somebody slipped or got tired? I don't know. But in looking through that, they found, wow, there's an amazing amount of accuracy in the copying of these manuscripts, and there's an 1,100-year gap. But in some instances where there was an issue, a lot of translations have opted for the earlier manuscript because it's closer to the writing at hand and didn't have any time for somebody to get in there and, and change the writing for some reason. The one thing that I don't like about the NASB translation, I love this translation, I think it's great, but I wish they would have paid attention to what was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's a little bit that would have made a difference, but it would have made a big difference. So let me give you an example. If you have the ESV, this for you is going to say it was the number of the sons of God, according to the number of the sons of God. If you have the Net Bible, which is a very literal translation, it'll say the number of the heavenly assembly. If you have the New Living Translation, the number in his heavenly court. Notice it says here, the Lexham, the number of the sons of God, the Good News Translation. I think that's the one where the guys don't have faces, but they always got the eyebrows so you can tell whether they're happy or sad. I love that translation. They actually have pictures. Maybe that's why I like it. I don't know. It says that he assigned to each nation a heavenly being. Watch this. The Revised says the number of the sons of God. The New American says the number of the sons of God. In fact, looking at this, uh, the Net Bible is a very interesting translation. It was done by the scholars at Dallas Theological Seminary. And what's interesting about that is they will actually give you a reason why did we translate it this way? which I know we all worry about at night, okay? And so they will list it out for you. Now, if you see the ellipsis here in various places, that's because I went ahead and took all the Hebrew and Greek out so we didn't have to worry about going over that. So notice it says, real quick, long quote, but for the Masoretic text, the 900 AD text, it says sons of Israel. But the Qumran fragment has sons of God. That is the Dead Sea Scrolls. While the LXX reads... Angelon Theu, or Angels of God. The LXX is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So, here's the reason why that's valuable to know. When it came about around 400 B.C., God ceased to reveal anything to anyone at any time during then and was silent until the time that John the Baptist came on the scene. Now, in doing that, they had 400 years of time. You end up having things like Alexander the Great coming up into power. And then you had Antiochus Epiphanes that sprung out of that and they created this great revolt. The rise of the Romans that comes up. All kinds of things ended up taking place that led to the first century times of Jesus. But in this time, they started to see that because of the influence of Alexander the Great, nobody was speaking Hebrew anymore. So in moving in that, they said, we need a translation of the Old Testament. And they didn't know it was the Old Testament at that time. We need a translation of this into a language we can understand. Well, everybody's speaking a common person's Greek at that time. In fact, 
by and large, all the quotations that we see coming out of the New Testament, quoted of the Old Testament, are the Greek and not the Hebrew. So they were even using the LXX, the Septuagint, back then. So they commissioned 70 scholars, Roman numerals, LXX, 70 scholars to come in and to translate from Hebrew into Greek in order to make this more knowledgeable. So when they sat down and they decided to translate this one verse into Greek, they come up with the idea of the angels of God. Sons of God is undoubtedly the original reading. The Masoretic text and the Septuagint have interpreted it differently. The MT assumes the expression sons of God refers to Israel, while the LXX has assumed that the phrase refers to the angelic heavenly assembly. Or let me break it down. Good and bad celestial beings who serve as a council of which God confers with at times in order for His will to be done. Sometimes even conferring decision to them. I can't fully grasp that, but that's what the Bible teaches. The phrase is also attested in the Ugaritic. And real quick, what is Ugaritic? Everybody learned something for Jeopardy this morning, okay? Ugaritic is a Semitic language that had Phoenician influence, and so it's very close to the idea of Hebrew, but it's like a morphing of that, where it refers to the high God El's divine assembly. According to the latter view, which is reflected in the translation, the Lord delegated jurisdiction, pay attention, the Lord delegated jurisdiction over the nations to His angelic host, while reserving for Himself Israel over whom He rules directly. This makes a lot of sense of the tensions that we see when we start talking about things like foreign policy. It's very important for us to recognize what the Bible says so that we can see clearly because people would have us want to see things other ways. Reading Scripture, we find that angelic celestial beings are given charge over the nations, over the Gentiles, and that the division of these people groups, and there were 70, if you go through Genesis chapter 10, you'll count 70 people groups. And there's many of them that you can place. We know where Germany came from. We know where Italy came from. We know where Russia came from. We know where the Arabs came from. We know all of those things because it chronicles it there. It's according to the number of the sons of God of the heavenly assembly. So, here are some examples of this. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 10 and see what happens. Daniel chapter 10. You get into Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Major prophets. There's a very interesting interaction that happens here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Daniel's in a situation where he's praying. A lot of people go to this to talk about the spiritual warfare that happens in the unseen realm, about when you pray, what exactly is going on and how come you're not getting an answer when you feel like that you should have an answer. Well, there's a whole lot of things that are going on that Satan has fostered in order to make this not such an easy deal. Notice that it says here in chapter 10, look at verse 10, Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, Man of high esteem, understand the words I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before Elohim, your words were heard, and I've come in response to your words. Notice what he's saying here. As soon as you made the decision that you were going to humble yourself and pray, God said, and sent it back. I've got an answer for you right now. That's how quick it was. Does God hear your prayers? Yeah. How, how soon does he answer? I just don't feel like God's answering my prayers. What does Daniel 10 say? 
He did answer your prayers. Have you received them yet? Big difference. Look at verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Is this talking about some kind of weird thing? It's got like a Camelot reference to it or something like that? Is this King Arthur stuff? No, it's not. These princes are talking about an angelic war that actually takes place. Demons are actually in the business of trying to stop God's answers of prayer from reaching people to comfort them. So here's Daniel agonizing for three weeks. And what is he told by this angel? Well, you were answered immediately. But it took me some time to get here. Notice the reason why. Number one, the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And then if you look at the end of 13, notice there's kings of Persia. That doesn't mean that Persia as an institution or as a country had many different kings. It meant there are many different demonic rulers that are vying for position there that are trying to stop this answer from coming. What had to happen? We had to get Michael involved. Michael is the chief prince. And does anybody know who he's the angelic being over? Israel. So God is the king over Israel, the creator over Israel. It's his special inheritance, but he has installed Michael as a spiritual oversight person in the situation. Well, now he had to get involved. Look down at verse 20 and 21. Then he said, do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. Persia and Greece. Anybody know where Persia is today? It's no longer Persia. Iran, demonic forces running the country and the people of Iran. That's not very socially acceptable. No, but maybe if we looked at what the Bible had to say about it, we would understand the hatred of those people so much better. That it's not just fueled from them. It just didn't start because somebody had a bad day and burned their eggs. It's much, much deeper than that. Also, the people of Greece. Notice that there is some sort of demonic being that's over them as well. Verse 21, however, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet, there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. What does that tell you? It tells you that everyone that was given charge of these nations, the bad are highly outweighing the good here. Interesting to see. How about the next situation? Turn back to chapter 4. Daniel 4. And it's really interesting to go pull commentaries and read who they think these people are. It's very interesting. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he's kind of disturbed about this dream. He's trying to get an answer about it. I had a vision of something while I was sleeping. Can anybody tell me what this is? Calls all the wise people that he possibly can in his kingdom. Nobody can tell him. He calls for Daniel. Daniel's able to tell him exactly what's going on. But what I want you to see is the presence that's involved in this. Look at 13. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. This is Nebuchadnezzar talking. He says, And behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. Everybody see the word angelic? It's in italics, which means what? It's not included in the original manuscript. The translators have put it there to try to help us understand. So if we were to read it straight out, it would say, And behold, a watcher, a holy one. Now, it's not like Daniel doesn't know the word for angel. He brings it up at the end of chapter 3 leading into this situation. Why do they use the word watcher? Who are the watchers? 
How about this? Go to verse 17. This sentence is a decree of the watchers. Notice, it's in alignment with the will of God, but it seems that these watchers are the ones who made the decree come forth and God approved it. It says here, the sentence is by decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. How about this? Look over at 23 just real quick, another instance. In that, the king saw a watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven. Who are these people? How come they're not just listed as angels? How come they're not listed as cherubim or seraphim? Just uh, being angels who have particular ranks and in particular duties that have been put in front of them. Why is that? Very odd to see. How about this? Ezekiel 28. Turn back to your left just a little bit. Ezekiel 28. Can you guys imagine? I had a whole other sermon on top of this. Verse 12. And let me just give you like a glance at something real quick. If you look at Ezekiel 28 verse 1, the word of Yahweh came again to me saying, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, thus says the Lord. And everything that you go through from verse 2 all the way to verse 11 seems that it's speaking to a human entity. Absolutely. There doesn't seem to be any problem with that whatsoever. But when you get into verse 12, the language changes. Watch this. Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says Adonai Yahweh. Adonai means master. Yahweh means the self-existent one. Okay? It says here, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and beauty. Sorry, imperfect and beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. This is in Ezekiel. The kingdom have already split at this time. We're like around six, seven hundred BC. If we have a conservative number on the creation of the world in the Garden of Eden, we're talking like four thousand BC. How in the world could this happen where they were in Eden? It's because it's not talking about a human being. Look what it says. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the the turquoise and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. This being was at one time considered a cherub of God, which is a specially commissioned angel for purposes, usually defense and warfare purposes, protection purposes at that time. Now, recognize this. Everybody get the Charmin commercial out of your head. Okay? The, the, the naked babies with wings, that's not what we're paying attention to here. Okay? This is a totally different deal. Notice you were a cherub. God placed them there, particularly. You were on the holy mountain of Elohim. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sin. Therefore, I cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. In other words, no one made this cherub sin, and this cherub is, who is it? Satan, Lucifer is a particular name. Satan means adversary or the accuser, is the idea, but his particular name is Lucifer. 
light shining one is the idea of what it means. Remember, devil masquerades as an angel of light. He's not the deviled ham guy with the pointy tail, okay? That's not who he is. If we were to see him, we'd be in absolute awe and, and, and dazzled by his brilliance that he would show. But there was a situation, and we know this from checking out Isaiah 14, he wanted to be God. He said, I'm tired of God being God. I want to be God. I want to call the shots. I want to do my thing, and I want to take the throne that he has given me, and I want to put it in place of his throne, and I want to sit there. When this happened, and sin originates within a person, that's important to understand, sin originates within us. We're all personally responsible for that. He is then cast out. How about the next one here? 1 Kings 22. This one messes up people real bad. And just real quick, it's right before 2 Kings, okay? And I mean right before. I know. It's 1045, I'm running out of time here. Let's be honest. Children's Church started late. They're probably not even to their craft yet. They worked really hard putting that together all week. You guys don't care if you beat the Methodists down to Arby's. It's okay. We're good. You guys take jokes well. Understand, I don't mean any of that seriously. 1 Kings 22, look at verse 19. Real quick, here's what's going on. Ahab. Everybody know Ahab and his wife Jezebel? Ooh, evil, nasty people, right? Crazy, bloodthirsty, ruthless, terrible people. Committed all kinds of sin. But in relation to that, there is a king that is a righteous king at that time. His name is Jehoshaphat. Okay? And what's interesting is, is the prophets have been wanting to speak to Ahab. And Ahab's been trying to surround himself with, I don't want this prophet to speak. They're not going to say anything but bad stuff. And I don't want to hear that. And that's not good. And I just want to be positive and happy in my carefree loving world kind of thing. Verse 19, Micaiah is a prophet. He said, therefore, hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne. And all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. Notice that. The host of heaven. Whenever we talk about that God is the Lord of hosts or the God of hosts, we're speaking about heavenly angelic beings. It says here, verse 20, Yahweh said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. Notice they're actually having a conference about this. They're actually having a discussion. Now recognize this. God gives every person an opportunity to respond to Him. He leaves it wide open. Regardless of how people have painted Him in a certain direction, regardless if people got the wrong guys about what it takes to be saved and those types of things, all of that, God desires for the truth to be known to everyone. What's painful is that when people know the truth and they say, I don't really care what God has said, I'm going to do whatever I want to do in response to that. Now there's a different thing that has taken place in that type of relationship. If you're not going to respond to His grace, you now come into a situation to where you have to be disciplined or judged in this situation. It's no different in raising children. So with Ahab, things have gotten so horrible. Does anybody remember the thing about the vineyard? Ahab goes, I want to buy this guy's vineyard. Your vineyard's so amazing. It's so wonderful. I love your wine. This is so great. Well, I'm not willing to sell it to you. And so then he, I was going to make a, never mind. I can't make that joke. Moving on. It's not appropriate. Um, moving on, he goes and he cries to Jezebel. I want the vineyard. Right? And what does she say? You're the king. Take it. 
And he said, okay. So they just bring people in and kill that guy and take his land. Sound familiar? It's an old satanic tactic. We want this. Can't have it. Okay, well, we'll kill you and we'll take it. Think, guys. Think. Notice it says here, the Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? The one said this while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh and said, I will entice him. And Yahweh said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, God said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now here's what everybody does. See, God actually commissioned evil to take place. Stop. God permitted evil to take place. God did not do the evil. Number two, God has already sent all these prophets speaking truth to him to get his attention. In fact, to become king of Israel, you had to write down the first five books of the Old Testament in your own hand and keep it with you before you could assume the throne. He's not an unknowledgeable person. Recognize this, okay? Notice that in this conference that takes place, this council that takes place, decisions are made. And who are these beings? They're over all the nations of the earth. Psalm 82. In the interest of time, we won't go over that, but you can look that up on your own. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 32. You don't have to, have to turn there, but I want to show this to you. Yahweh's portion is His people. Jacob is the allotment of His inheritance. So, one thing to remember about this. If you look at Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations, Israel's not there. That's significant. Why? Because everybody that's an angelic being gets a divvying up of the nations according to their language now that that's happened. And in doing so, God goes last. And He says, I'm actually going to call out of this nation this guy. And I'm going to start from scratch with him. You're getting people that are already nations because of their language. I'm going to take a guy that isn't anything. And I'm going to show you what I can do from him, which is what we're going to look at next week. So, Yahweh the Creator chooses Israel, showing the heavenly host that He doesn't need an advantage to be superior. Go to Deuteronomy 7 real quick. We're on the way to finishing up. You guys have been very patient. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Good one to mark in your Bible. Look at verse 6. For you are a holy people to Yahweh your Elohim. Yahweh your Elohim has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. Yahweh did not set His love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the people, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, Yahweh brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king, of Egypt. What motivates God to choose Israel? What is it? His love. His love is what it is. His love is what motivated Him to say, these people were nothing, but yet they're everything to me. We also see this in Deuteronomy 10. You can write this down. You have to turn there. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He means that literally. Speaking of everything, it's been divided into the nations. And we need to understand this because the call of Abraham and the promise made to Abraham that we're going to see next week doesn't make any sense if we don't understand this. The great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan 
and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. The love of God is replete in this situation that's taking place. And what's interesting about these angelic beings that have control over the nations, that have this oversight, is God is constantly seeking to champion them to do right, to work righteousness, to do good things. You know what's right. Don't position this country to do wrong things. Stand up and lead them in a healthy direction. And what you find, that power invested to them actually ends up to their downfall. Or an entrusted stewardship that belongs to God is given to them even in the angelic realm. And many of them still fail. But we cannot understand why in the world God would call some guy out of what used to be Babylon to go to a country that he doesn't know unless we understand that spiritually behind this, God is doing something in order to prove to the unseen realm that He is God and there's none like Him. Recognize the love of God in this situation. I know it's kind of a weird place to leave, but I had a whole another 45 minutes prepared. So, Kevin. I would say whichever one was branched with England. You know, if we really trace it back to the root of what it was. If you go back to the table of nations in Genesis 10, you can find these origin nations. The question is, is who came out of them from that time? And I think that's how we would follow that. But when we see things like principalities, powers, uh, dark forces, those types of things, we find out that in the Greek, all of those are rankings of demons. Chances are that could have something to do with them. Not all of them are bad. It's one thing we got to remember. Some of them are striving for good, but by and large, they've all bitten into sin and, and have been enticed to go in the wrong direction. So, Jay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. In fact, we've often, how many people have been told that whenever Lucifer fell, he took two-thirds of the angels with him or a third of the angels with him? Okay, does everybody realize that where you get that, where you get that information is actually in Revelation 12, I think it is, 12 or 13? The very last book of the Bible is telling you that. You realize that if you put that in time, it's not talking about what happened before Eden. It's actually talking about future. In other words, there are still angels that are going to capitulate in this situation. It can happen. It can absolutely happen. So yeah. You guys are gracious. Excellent. I was waiting. Okay, let's pray. God, thank you for our time in the Word. Help us, Lord, to understand even more. Um, about this subject. It's a heady subject. It's a subject that we don't easily latch on to. Father, how important it is that we recognize there's a spiritual conflict, a spiritual war that's going on at all times. And the nature of which it is, uh, in your wisdom, uh, you've seen fit to distribute these nations into the care and entrustment of your council, your, your heavenly assembly. Uh, Lord, in, in, in just thinking about what a responsibility that is from a supernatural sense of them uh, obeying you, following you, respecting you, holding fast to your guidelines. It really is beyond the here and now of where we're at. But Lord, it does so much to explain what we see in nations and wars and famines and um, this people being oppressed constantly. Uh, that there's something so much more than just a dictator being in place. Uh, but it's a situation um, that is evil. Evil through and through to the core. Father, help us to pray. Help us to know how to pray in a way that we would be subservient to You, regardless of what goes on. 
regardless of what the seen or unseen who rule over America decide to do, it uh, doesn't change who you are. Uh, it doesn't change the fact that our allegiance is to you. So God, thank you for loving us with an everlasting love. Um, we praise you for that. It's in Christ's name, amen.